Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Both. Have a good day. You too. Eric Smith joins us now, professor of Tulane's Institute of Energy. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. Everything's fine. How are you? Oh, but how about roll wave? How about that Tulane green wave, huh? Yeah, we slipped up and won a championship. I uh, thought that was pretty good. A lot of excitement on campus or not, Professor? I'm curious. Yeah, they ended up uh, storming the field, and I've got pictures of the field completely filled with students and, and of course, uh, adults, fans, just roaming around, shaking each other's hands and cheering and stuff. That's so, awesome. Fireworks. Good. All, all, all the uh, the good things that go with winning. Do you have any players in any of your classes or not? I'm just curious. I don't this okay. time, but I, back a few years ago, I had Matt Forte as a oh, student. So, oh, yeah, was, how about that? Um, he was a pretty good student, too. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, what's going on with, um, I guess, Russian oil and uh, price cap. Uh, it, it, let's go back and start at the beginning with, with, with oil prices in the market. And I know it's kind of hard to explain in a short, brief segment, but I think a lot of us think we know what's going on with oil, but we don't because oil is not oil. There are all different types of oil to begin with. That's exactly right. And uh, we have a, uh, a president who seems to uh, like to dabble in the oil business once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, when his major funders like FTX are not going bankrupt anyway. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> But but what about the oil market to begin with? What what are some misconceptions? Maybe we'll start there with what we think matters really doesn't, and what does well, matter we don't I mean, pay attention I, to. I think one of the things that we're finding out is that this most recent oil cap that they put on for Russian oil, a sixty dollar cap, and it sounds like a good idea. Ought to, ought to stabilize prices, all that sort of thing, but. Nobody ever worries about the ripple effects. And one of the ripple effects is the Russians assuming people will seize any tankers that they use. They're using the oldest, crappiest tankers they can find to to export oil. It's going through the Black Sea. And more importantly, it's going to Turkey. Turkey has said, that's great. Let's see your insurance papers. We want to be insured and know in advance that if there's a spill, you can pay for it. Mm-hmm because these tankers are not the most reliable ones on the high seas. And, of course, the Turks have a good point. It's the busiest shipping channel in the world. You know, thousands of tankers a year go through there. And uh, the economists, when they were putting this all together, didn't really worry about it. They just said, well, we won't let them buy uh, Western insurance. Well, (laughs) the net effect is... You're stopping oil deliveries to countries that have nothing to do with Russia. <laughs> you know, they, they just uh, are simply buying legal oil, and uh, but but the Russians can't produce the, these insurance papers because the, the insurance syndicates in places like um, Munich and then more importantly in London uh, are saying, you know, we're not going to say in advance we're going to ensure fully the coverage of the, any ships going anywhere it's just if there's an incident we'll negotiate a price 
Professor, I like to bring the audience in, and somebody texted in, and, and this is my fault, I guess. I didn't start off on the right foot because they're saying, what is a Russian oil cap? What does that mean? Maybe we should go back to that point. All right. Well, there was a <clears throat> oh, six months ago, I guess, um, Janet Yeoman, uh, our Secretary of Treasury uh, and former head of the Federal Reserve, <clears throat> suggested that the Europeans ought to put a cap on on, on uh, Russian oil and that we wouldn't embargo it, but we would say if you uh, receive Russian oil, you can't pay more than $60 a barrel for it. That's what the cap is. And who and agreed of course, to what this? happened, it, well, the Russians certainly didn't agree to right. it, but all, all of the EU members agreed. Okay. Go ahead and finish. I'm sorry. And the, US, and the U.S. agreed as well. So... But then, you know, there are little issues like how do you move the oil? Well, you can move it in ships and you know, tankers. And uh, there are, dare I say it, a few tankers in the world that will ignore any rules that you put on them anyway. Mm-hmm. And they're generally the oldest ones. So they said, well, uh, we'll char- the Russians said, we'll charter these ships and we will, uh, you know, move them into the world market and they'll deliver the oil to China and India. And uh, unfortunately, those ships have to cross. The Black Sea is landlocked. You have to cross through Turkey to get to the open ocean and the Mediterranean. And the Turks are saying, you can't come in unless you can provide ironclad insurance that these ships are not going to ruin our waters and, you know, have wrecks and all, all the other problems that go on with young older ships. So the and Russia- now you're fighting in an insurance market that hasn't agreed to anything. So the, the the Russians moved it to ships that were flagged outside of Russia. Is that what I'm hearing? Or yeah, like, yeah, yeah, okay. no, yeah, that was the reason for that. And now Turkey's saying, well, okay, nice move, but uh, you got to make sure that you have the proper insurance should there be a spill. When it comes to India and China, were they honoring that price cap or not? They're, they're Chinese, and the uh, Indians have have no prospect of honoring any price cap. So they why would the Russians? We even have to put in a new tanker. I guess is what I'm getting at. Or well, because they tanker. can't get it through the they can't get it through the Bosporus and through Istanbul unless they've got the right insurance because they're in Turkish waters. But if it's a Russian flag ship, I guess how does the price cap factor? Let me just say it: if if India and China aren't concerned about the price cap, then why would the Russians have to change ships? Or is it just so that? They can pass through those waters, and that's where the because Turkey are sovereign waters. It's like you can't sail a Russian ship up the Mississippi River without having the proper insurance and meeting the U.S. you know restrictions and Jones Act gotcha. restrictions gotcha. and stuff okay. on ships. That's that's what I was thinking. A couple of different things came into play here. So, how does all of this affect the price we pay at the pump? Well, and like any other. Um, you know, macro market 101 course, if you have a smaller available supply of any particular product and the same demand that you had before whatever the incident was, the price is going to go up. And if there's an oversupply, then the price will go down. Well, right now there's not an oversupply because there are 22 ships backed up, among other things. There's 22 of these ships backed up trying to get out, and the typical ship is going to have anywhere from a half million to two million barrels of oil per ship on it. So it's it's a lot of oil. <laughs> yeah. 
and it's it's not that it's it's not spoken for it's been bought it's uh, you know it's halfway there it just simply can't get through turkey until they are satisfied with the insurance provisions so what's going the resolution of this going to be do you know all right my guess is that people are going to say oh we hadn't thought about that <laughs> you know so so they there'll be some sort of an emergency fund put together to to satisfy the Turks with the insurance backstop is available, and it won't be by the insurance companies. It'll be some sort of uh, EU funding, so, sort of like the you know the Germans just did a three billion dollar loan to one of the trading companies to make sure that they have enough natural gas being brought in as LNG. Um, there are concerns being expressed about the the enough um, energy being available for um, electricity generation during the winter. Again, Professor, I guess that's presuming that it, it does turn cold. Well, it will there, maybe not here, but uh, how much of a concern is that? Well, it, it's a valid concern. Uh, we are exporting significant amounts of LNG. Of course, we have lots and lots of gas, and we actually have increasing inventories in our strategic reserve of gas. So I don't think that we are basically, if we were just looking at Louisiana, Louisiana's got plenty of electricity and plenty of gas and mild weather. So, I mean, I don't see us having a problem. But I also see places like Illinois where they've, they've shut down nukes, they've shut down coal plants, and uh, natural gas is kind of the only thing they have either for heating or for power generation that, that's viable. So to the degree that we have pipelines connecting ourselves to Illinois and we have pipeline and wires connecting us, there's going to always be pressure during a cold snap to, to uh, sort of siphon the fuel or the electric power out of Louisiana, and that, that could lead to some rotating blackouts um, to no fault of our own, nor for any particular shortage locally. It's just that it's uh, deemed to be more uh, strategic to deliver it to somebody in the middle of the country than somebody on the coast. When it comes to oil and gas in Louisiana and the Biden administration, uh, you know, it's it's been back and forth. We hate it until we need it. Then we don't hate it so much, but we still hate it, but we need it, but we still hate it. Um, I mean, is that pretty accurate? That is, that is. You can you can speak to the Californians about that yeah. as well as the Europeans. Um, how does big oil and gas take that and, and looking ahead to the future with, you know, I guess a newly elected Congress? I, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, with a, a Senate majority or not. But um, what, what's the outlook for 2023 when it comes to oil and gas, specifically for Louisiana? Well, I think Louisiana is looking pretty good. I, I think that it would take some extraordinary acts by by our Congress to, to uh, allow – somebody to mandate deliveries of Louisiana gas to somebody in Illinois. But, it, you know, it, it can happen. And I would think that there'll be a, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get through this winter in reasonable shape if we're left alone and in great shape if, uh, you know, it's a warm winter. Uh, on the other hand, if, you know, we are, saddled with some sort of a uh, federal legislation that would say, okay, from now on forward, we're going to mandate 25% exports during winter emergencies from states that are surplus 
have surplus uh, gas either in inventory or production capacity, and we have both, uh, then I would say that, you know, we have an issue in terms of our ability to continue to export LNG, one of the few things we're successfully exporting these days. Um, where does oil, the um, heating oil and all factor in this with gas prices? Somebody texted in because they know there's a conversion, I think, of refineries when it comes to winter and all of that stuff. Yeah, uh, there's a serious issue when we get to places like New England where they are they, they're chronically short of natural gas. Even in the summertime, they're short of natural gas because uh, New York and other states don't allow pipelines to cross their states to supply them. And our Jones Act rules limit the number. Well, we don't have any LNG tankers to bring uh, LNG from the Gulf Coast up to New England. Uh, to the degree they get any, they get it from places like Trinidad and in exceptional cases from Russia. So uh, they're short of gas. Uh, they tend to take the gas they do have available and use it for home heating, not for power generation. Then they're short of power. Then, believe it or not, they burn oil for power generation, which competes directly with using oil for home heating. And they have a strategic oil reserve in New England. It's above ground shell tanks, but they 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 uh, it's a big political issue in in uh, not only New England but New York as well, uh, having enough oil to keep everything heated, and that of course uh, is a vulnerability that we don't we don't really face down here. We don't use oil for heating. Real quick, and I know you didn't come on to talk about this, but it popped into my mind about the power plant that was shot up in North Carolina and vulnerability of the grid and all of that stuff. What keeps you awake at night, Professor, when it comes to that? Um, when it comes I, to I, sustainable, I guess, reliable energy. Let me put it that way. Well, I, you know, I think that the, the key to reliable energy is having multiple you know, delivery systems, resilient systems, so that uh, if there was a problem, for example, this problem in North Carolina with people taking pot shots at the switchgear in the in the uh, substations, um, you're never going to be able to put armed guards on every one of these plants. And uh, but but you can do better surveillance uh, to the degree that people go after things. You can go after them and make examples of them, that sort of thing. So I think you can control it at a certain level, but I do think that we have a relatively stretched infrastructure right now, and I, I would blame that primarily on uh, you know the environmental movement in the sense that it, it does everything that it can to prevent pipeline resilience and grid resilience, and and in each case, you know, if I thought that. Uh, yeah, I was managing I, – I could manage a national system. I can't do it in the U.S. because the states have so much veto power. And I'm a, I'm a big states' rights guy. But I do, I do recognize that if you were going to have, um, you know, systems that are not resilient, you're going to have a more dictatorial, more rigid kind of a structure than, it, than if you do have these alternate routes available to you. Love talking to you, Professor. I learn something every time you're on, and I thank you for suffering this fool gladly. You have a good day. No, right? You too. Bye-bye. Tim. You bet. Eric Smith, Professor at Tulane's Institute of Energy. We're going to take a break, and we come back, we're going to talk to the family of a, a sailor killed at Pearl Harbor on this date 81 years ago.
that is going to be uh, buried on U.S. soil today, and his remains were um, finally brought back to the mainland. We'll talk when we come back here on WWL. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.